0: Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm not getting much of a response. Good morning. Good. Today uh, we are finishing our Family Matters series out of Ephesians. Uh, well, it started back in Ephesians 5:22, and it now ends in Ephesians 6:5 through 9. We named this particular series Family Matters because families, our families, your family truly does matter to God. Our families matter to the church and our families model, that is, to the watching world what it means to follow Christ. Therefore, we have taken what would now be 13 sermons to discuss the matters of the family. Now, last week we began to look at issues in the workplace as we explored the slave-master relationship uh, that's found in 6, 5 through 8. We applied those principles that we learned out of 6, 5 through 8. We applied those principles found in those verses to our modern context as employer slash employee. While there are some major differences, or many major differences, between slavery and modern employment, there are principles which we should know and apply in our workplaces. I was having a conversation with one of our men afterward. He said that very few churches in America would be preaching on the subject of work. That's the beauty of preaching sequentially through the text. I don't have the luxury of skipping something that I don't like or something that may not seem as interesting. In the case of our work, though, most of us spend half, almost half of our working hours working for someone else as part of the rat race, so-called rat race, that is. In the apt words of Lily Tomlin, I don't much, very often uh, quote someone like Lily Tomlin, but she says, the trouble with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> well, I would say that it's only rats who win the rat race, So don't be a rat. All jokes aside, much of our Christian walk is lived out in the context of the workplace. Frankly, we spend so much time and energy doing our work that we tend to make it our main purpose in life, do we not? Oswald Chambers puts it this way, We tend to set up success in Christian work as our purpose, but our purpose should be to display the glory of God in human life, to live a life hidden with Christ in God, in our everyday human conditions. End quote. If we're going to display God's glory in the workplace and not just be another rat, it is crucial that we work according to the principles provided or found in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul clearly understood this, therefore, he took the time to address the workplace to the church at Ephesus. Now, last week we discovered God's requirements for slaves or in our modern context, employees. Today, we're going to look briefly at his instructions for believing masters, or in our modern context, employers. Now, I think you may be surprised by the long-range implication of implications of Paul's instructions. So let's dive into our text this morning. Let me pray, and then I'm going to read the text, and then we'll get started. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. Father, may you bless this time richly. May the hearer, may the Holy Spirit engage the hearer to really, truly hear the words that you would have spoken. And may the Holy Spirit engage my heart so that I would be clear, so that I would preach with clarity, and so that I would preach your words and your words alone. Not my opinion, but yours. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Ephesians 6 5 through 9. Follow along with me if you have your copy of God's Word. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters. Do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In, the sev- in 17th century London, Henry White, a minister, was awakened in the middle of the night, urgently implored by a woman at the door to come and see her husband, who she said was dying. Mr. White, hastily dressed, fastened his watch in his waistcoat pocket, and ran out the darken- into the darkened London streets. The woman... "...led him to the door of a squalid house in a court. Following the woman's lead, he entered, and he went upstairs, and he found lying on a wretched bed in the corner of the room a man of about 40, with just moments of life left in him. Glancing around the room, the minister was astonished to see some articles which seemed out of place in such surroundings. On a table stood a valuable silver dish, and expensive clothes of the latest fashion were strewn around the room in large piles." They were, there were even small-framed pictures of other families. and With a glance around the room, the minister surmised. He, he realized that the man was actually a lifelong thief. At that moment, Mr. White, the minister, was only concerned with the man's eternal soul, so he bent over the bed to talk to the man and offered to pray for him. As he spoke to the man, he saw a sudden gleam in his eyes and realized that they were fixed on the watch chain. This minister prayed as his wife stood near, sobbing her heart out. When he finished, he found the man was stone-cold dead. Well, he wasn't cold yet, but he was stone-dead. Rising from his knees, he discovered that the man's dead fingers were gripped around the watch chain. Even as the man was dying, the sight of a gold watch chain overcame the man. As the minister was praying for God or to God to forgive this man's sins, The dying thief was trying to lift his watch from him. Friends, that is the nature of sin. Unredeemed men are hopelessly enslaved to their sin. Whether they are a thief, or a fornicator, or a liar, or all of the above, they are slaves to sin. Prior to conversion, even Christians... You and I, if you are converted, were enslaved to sins. Sin, we were sons of disobedience. The Apostle Paul captures this truth in Ephesians 2, 1-3 by saying, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But he goes on to say, Among them, we too are all formally, we all formally lived according to, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, here's the point. It doesn't matter what you are in this life. This truth applies to all. You could be a president or a king and still be a slave, a slave to sin. In our time, you could be a CEO with hundreds or even thousands under you and still be a slave to sin. In Paul's day, you could be a master of many slaves and yet still be a slave yourself. That truth is, the truth is, that is, the truth is that we're all equal before the throne of God. God does not judge you, God will not judge you by your outward appearance or by your worldly status. He does does not judge the president, or the king, or the CEO, or the slave master. He doesn't judge according to a different standard. Now, you see, God's standard, the standard of God's law, doesn't change. Therefore, He doesn't judge the the master differently than He judges the slave. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, know this. Each one of you, and myself, each one of us will stand in judgment before the Lord. Those who are not in Christ will be judged according to their deeds, and their deeds will be found wanting. According to Revelation 20, verse 15, those not in Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's a difficult truth, even for the Christian who knows that he's going to stand before the throne of God and and God is going to see him in Christ. It's a difficult truth to know that there are those who will stand before our Lord and will be found wanting. Their name will not be found in the book of life. And they'll be thrown in the lake of fire. But the fact that you're going to stand before the Lord is true no matter who you are in this life, slave and master alike. But if you're in Christ, you will be with Him forever, slave and master alike. Now, you must understand this truth as we approach our text today. As I said earlier, we, last week we studied Ephesians 6-8, where Paul gave instructions for the slaves. He said, in, he said in Romans 6-5, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. See, in that passage we learned that slaves, in Paul's time, were to be subject to their earthly masters. When... When Christians are born again, God sets them free from their sin. They become then a slave to Christ. But here's the thing He doesn't always set us free from our present circumstances. Matter of fact, most of the time He doesn't. Oswald Chandler says. The aim of the vigorous saint is to achieve realization of Jesus Christ in every set of circumstances. So no matter what your situation is, to find find Christ in those situations and how He's working through them to make you more like Him. You see, slaves in Paul's day that remain a slave to their earthly master may remain a slave to their earthly master for the rest of their lives. Now that's not to say that the Bible condones slavery, nor does it, Condone the maltreatment of slaves. Truly, over the church age, God has used used godly men to abolish legal slavery and the slave trade, especially in our Western world. As I mentioned last week, he used men such as William Wilberforce. According to uh, J.I. Packer, or actually, let me just say this before I give you the quote. My fear is that in a woke world, in a woke world, That is fighting over the meaning of history, that we forget the men and women that God has used to fight the evils of slavery and racism. Even though these words do not come in the context of our current woke movement, J.I. Packer voices the same concern. Listen to this. William Wilberforce was a great man who impacted the Western world, as few others have done. Blessed with brains, charm, influence, and initiative, much, and much wealth, he put evangelism on Britain's map as a power for social change. This, he says this, First by overthrowing the slave trade, almost single-handedly, and then by generating a stream of societies for doing good and reducing evil in, in public life. And then he says this, To forget such men is foolish. End quote. So God has used men who are Christians to eradicate or help eradicate slavery. But I would argue that the main reason we don't see Jesus and the apostles fighting against the institution of slavery during their day is that their purpose was to set the guilty free through the power of the gospel. And that should be what we're about. See, they knew that freedom from the power of sin is infinitely, eternally more critical than physical freedom on this earth. Here in Ephesians, Paul is far more concerned that slaves be given the strength to handle their present circumstances and to obey their masters in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says they are to obey in reverent fear by recognizing that they are slaves of a heavenly master. They are to obey, they are not to obey, that is, begrudgingly, but in the sincerity of their hearts. As such, they're not to be double-minded by obeying their earthly master in action only. But they're on the other side of the coin not to be man-pleasers who only obey their master when it makes them look good or when they know their master is looking. Ultimately, slaves are to be subject to their earthly masters because they are slaves to a heavenly master that is their heavenly master. With this knowledge, they are to do the will of the Father as they work, as they work in an everyday job. To do that, then, they need to understand His will. Understanding His will establishes an eternal outlook so that the believer sees everything, including His work, through an eternal lens. You see, when we filter everything through an eternal lens, our attitudes about life and about work change changes uh, to match God's will for us. Now, I would argue that this occurs when we're being filled with the Spirit, just as Paul had exhorted the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18. He says, says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, when we're filled with the Spirit, our perspective changes. Our, Our perspective changes. It changes from what? From an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. And when this occurs, we're able to then render service with goodwill no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances. We have goodwill toward our earthly masters because we realize the heavenly rewards. We trust that the promise in James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, when you're in a difficult situation in your job, and you, that God has put you in, you, you persevere under that trial, for once you've persevered, you, you, once you come to the end of your life, you've been promised a, a, a crown of life. You, you, when you complete the race, you get this wreath that says that you are, you, you are in the Lord. Now in, in Ephesians 6-9, Paul shifts his focus from believing slaves to believing masters. Now, in this verse, Paul gives three instructions to believing masters, which we will apply to employers. As masters in this world, first, first instruction, you are to obey the same rules. You are to obey the same rules. Look at your text in Ephesians 6, 9. Paul writes, And masters do the same things to them. Now, last week we carefully studied and defined the Roman system of slavery. We saw that masters, those who were in charge over slaves, wielded a huge amount of power over them. The the Roman government, in Paul's day, gave them much latitude to treat their slaves as they saw fit. Slaves had almost no, if, if they had any legal recourse against their masters. Now, we must keep in mind that there were some masters who were benevolent with their slaves. They provided care, and they even educated them. But many masters ruled their slaves through, through threat of violence. Now, here in this verse, Paul calls masters, believing masters, to a revolutionary way of dealing with their slaves. He says, do the same things to them. Now, the question is, the question we have to answer is, of the text, what are these same things? Now, I would argue that this could be summed up by Paul's words in Ephesians 6.6. Look at Ephesians 6.6. He says, Not by way of eye service, but as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, now listen to this phrase, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, in that verse, Paul called the believing slave to an eternal perspective. In his relationship with his earthly master, he was to to have this perspective by understanding God's eternal will. Therefore, if they understood God's eternal will, they could then do the will of God from the heart, because the will of God was in their heart. They understood it, and they believed it. And so therefore, they had an eternal perspective in their relationship. In verse 9, Paul calls believing masters to the same perspective. In the words of John MacArthur, A Christian employer's relationship to his employees should have the same motivation and goal as a Christian worker's relationship to his employer, the desire to please the Lord. Applied to our current context, Christian employers are are to do God's will from the heart, and they are to model Christ, the heavenly master, in the workplace. So they are an earthly master. Christian employers are an earthly master. They are to model their heavenly master in the workplace. As a Christian employer or a manager of people, you must always seek to do what is right and good before the Lord. You should live to exemplify Jesus' command to love others more than you love yourself. Your relationship with those who work for you should be characterized by Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. So when you're dealing with your employees, they're not there to make you look good. They're not there for your purpose. You need to treat them, uh, that's looking out for your own personal interests, but you need to treat them in a way that shows concern for their interests. You must regard them as more important than yourselves. And when you're doing these things, you see Christ as the model for this type of humility. As a humble employer, as a humble earthly master, you uh, ought to make it your aim to be pleasing to the Lord. You should never do anything. It should never be said of any Christian employer that they are abusive toward their employees. Never. You should recognize that any authority, let me say this very clearly, any authority that you have, any authority that any of us have on earth, Who does it come from? It comes from God. It comes from the Lord. If you have any authority on earth, it is derived from God. He has given you that authority, and you need to see it that way. You should understand that you answer to the same master as your employees. You should humbly serve Christ in your job and never do anything to dishonor Him. Let's look at the second instruction to the masters. As masters, you are to obediently cease ruling with fear. You are to obediently cease ruling with fear. Look at your text in 6.9 again. Paul writes, do the same things to them and give up threatening. Uh, the verb translated give up means to cease, desist, stop. The word threatening is the same root word that Luke used in Acts 9 1 to describe. Saul, or Paul, his, described his threats against the brethren. In, in Acts 9 1. Now, Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So, so in that verse, Luke says that Paul was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. That's the, that's the point that we're seeing here with the masters. Paul is saying, stop doing that. You know, earlier in the sermon, we, we, I said that the masters and The Roman system of slavery regularly used fear to intimidate their slaves. They intimidated intimidated them to get them to obey and be productive. The slaves had no recourse. Slaves in the Roman system of slavery were regularly beaten as a reminder of their low status and the fact that they had no honor. But Paul is specifically telling believing masters to stop using threats and fear in that fashion. Ultimately, you can put it this way <clears throat> they are not to encourage the fear of man in, in their slaves. See, I mean, the, the, the slaves, he tells the slaves, don't fear man, but fear God, right? He's telling the, the, the masters the same thing, but he's also saying, don't encourage fear, unless, uh, other than the reverent fear. If they were, to, they were to foster the reverent fear of the Lord, especially with their believing slaves. Now, as I said earlier, Paul is effectively calling believing masters to a revolutionary way of treating their slaves. Think about that. I mean, if the, if the system is to rule by fear, and Paul says stop doing that, I mean, he's taking, he's taking a, the one leg out of a three-legged stool. Or it really isn't. In the words of, a, of one commentator, slaves were never in, the, in a position to, to, to predict when the wrath of an owner would descend upon them and their lives. They were conditioned by this perennial fear of physical abuse and maltreatment. And In effect, Paul is removing the primary way that masters motivated their slaves to work. Interestingly enough, he doesn't differentiate between believing slaves and unbelieving ones. He's saying they were to treat all their slaves in the same way. I mean, think about the effect that that would have. I would argue that... ultimately led to more of the system that we have now of employer-employee. Now, there's a passage in Matthew 24 that I believe reveals our heart toward the treatment of those who have been placed under our authority. In that passage, in Matthew 24, 45-51, through 51, if you want to turn there, Jesus was demonstrating the importance of remaining ready for His imminent return. So I, I, want, to, I want to be clear about that. He's talking about when... You know, remaining in the in a ready state for his imminent return. We must remain ready because he will come at an hour that we don't think he will. Now let's pick up in verse forty five. He says in Matthew twenty four forty five, if you're there. He says, Who then is the who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So he's saying he's giving him this responsibility, and the one who does so (coughs) is blessed. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time. Now notice, (coughs) notice, that that it's the master who has given this slave authority. Notice the parallel. You've been given authority. But if this slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, beloved, I believe this this parable graphically demonstrates that our Lord will hold us accountable for how we treat others, especially those in our charge. If you've been given authority over... People over others, others, by the way, made in the image of God, you need to take that responsibility seriously. You must know that He is and He alone is the righteous judge who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's Exodus 34. Don't be the guilty one, but who Christ will judge when He returns. Let's look at Paul's third instruction to believing masters as masters you are to observe jesus's righteous rule look back at your text it says masters do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven now we've already talked about this ultimately With this phrase, Paul is giving the main motivation for believing masters to treat their slaves well and to give up threatening. They know, they fully know, that God is in heaven and He's every Christian's master, whether slave or free. It's interesting, this word knowing. This word knowing can have the meaning of being intimately acquainted with. It is used in the New Testament to denote a relationship with God. So Paul appeals to the masters and the slaves' relationship with God as the motivation to stop treating their slaves poorly. In this world, you've heard it said that it's all in who you know. You've heard that, right? It's all in who you know. Of course, this refers to utilizing business relationships or networking to get ahead in the business world. In this case, though... Paul drops the um, ultimate trump card. He says that both believing slaves and believing masters have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Therefore, therefore you must observe the golden rule with your employees. You know the golden rule? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way as you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. I remember working for a company whose... Was uh, The CEO was Jewish, uh, didn't believe in Christ, but he, he was very enthralled by, the, by the, the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of our company uh, sayings or, or principles was, in everything, treat people the same way you want, they want, you want them to treat you. I think if we do that, it goes a long ways. But as Christians, we do that because we know. We know the one who said this. Look back at your text. He says there is no partiality with Him. There's no partiality with Him. Paul ends this section by reminding the masters that there is no partiality with God. The word translated partiality literally means to receive a face. In other words, God does not look at our station in life. He doesn't look at our skin color. He doesn't look at whether we have wealth Rich or poor, he doesn't look at where we're from. He doesn't look at what job we have. He doesn't look at any of those external things. He doesn't look at anything other than who we are before Christ. A few years ago, a police officer I know was involved in a situation where his police chief was pulled over for drinking and driving. In fact, the police chief had wrecked and destroyed his city-owned vehicle. He had just completely destroyed it. My friend at the time was the highest-ranking officer on duty that night, and he conferred with other ranking officers, and together they all agreed to take this police chief straight home without booking him directly into jail. Now, they, they still planned to charge him with DUI and to go through all the proper channels, but they didn't want him to spend the night in jail per the normal procedure. They did this based on his reconnaissance. You see, they wanted to spare him the danger as police chief they wanted to spare him the danger of spending the night among criminals who may know his identity, therefore, they may do, st- do things to him at that, at that time. So, but here's the problem. It just so happened that the city manager was up for re- re-election, so he accused my friend of partiality. Literally, the, the city manager accused him and those around him, the other ranking officers, of seeing a face and acting in an unwarranted way. Now, my friend may have been justified in doing these things based on the circumstances. The chief was ultimately punished for his crimes. But the point is clear. The point is clear. Our God judges without taking externals into account. He doesn't He doesn't take... He doesn't look at our face, He doesn't look at our situation and say, well, I'm going to change this because of that. No, you can expect His judgment to be a righteous judgment and to be without partiality. This truth is well attested throughout Scripture. Moses said the following about God in Deuteronomy 10 17. He says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take or nor take a bribe. End quote. Well, that's that's I'm quoting scripture. In Leviticus 19:15, God told his people. So so we already know from Deuteronomy that God is not partial. In Leviticus 19.15, God told His people, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So there we have, basically because of the character of God, that He is not partial. He expects us to deal impartially. This prohibition fits with God's character, does it not? We see this again in Leviticus 19.37, where God says, You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. You see, God's character is is that we do as He does to the extent that we can. As finite humans, that is. In the New Testament, in Romans 2.11, Paul says simply, For there is no partiality with God. He judges each man equally, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. He shows no partiality in his judgment, and he expects us to show no partiality in how we deal with others. In James 2, James tells his readers not to show partiality on the basis of wealth or power. He says in James 2, 1, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. He even makes it, by the way, an issue of true faith. When we show partiality, we are demonstrating, we are possibly demonstrating, that is, that we have a dead faith that does not, in fact, save. In the case of these masters at at Ephesus, if they insist on treating their slaves with contempt, if they insist on uh, judging or, or motivating them, that is, with fear, they're practically saying they don't, believe that God will righteously judge them. And that's a terrifying place to be. Brethren, if your true faith, or you demonstrate that as your true faith in the workplace by obeying your uh, earthly masters in the Lord, if you are a boss, if you are a supervisor, if you are a manager over others, you demonstrate your true faith by not lording over them or threatening them in any way. The only, way we can give, the only way we can give ourselves to this type of life if we give our, is if we give ourselves to Christ and His wisdom. Now, I commend you to give yourselves to Christ and to live according to His wisdom. James 3.17 says, says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. If if we live according to wisdom, that wisdom, the wisdom from above, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our church, we will have peace and righteousness in in those contexts. You may recall that in Ephesians 5.15, the Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus to be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. In Ephesians 5.16, he goes on to say, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You see, Paul understood that the church at Ephesus lived and worked in a world that is currently controlled by the forces of darkness. And oh, by the way, uh, Christian brother and sister, you live and you work in a world that is controlled by the forces of darkness. He recognized, that is, Paul recognized the spiritual battle being waged around us even though we can't see it. In Ephesians chapter 1, he reminded the church of their glorious salvation planned by the Father before the the foundation of the world. In chapters 1, 13 and 14, he encouraged them that they had been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. In that same chapter, in verses 15-21, through Paul essentially prays that the Ephesian church would recognize uh, those things that they cannot see. He prayed that they would understand the mighty power of God that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him him at His right hand in the heavenly places. See, Paul wanted the church to see with eyes of faith, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead was working through the church, uh, that same power in Ephesians one twenty one is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In chapter 2, we saw it earlier, he reminded them that they were formerly dead in their trespasses and sins. <coughs> excuse me, prior to Christ, they were firmly entrenched in the world. They were living in the lust of their flesh. They were adulterers, they were fornicators, they were liars, and they were much more. According to Paul, they were children of wrath. Then he repeated a a grand truth. That those who were in Christ have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. They have been taken from below and placed in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. They have been taken from the dominion of the demonic forces and placed on the throne in Christ. Now I want you to see something in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have been we have been saved as a demonstration of His grace to the angelic realm. He says something very similar in Ephesians 3.10. He says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. According to those verses, God's multifaceted wisdom is now being made known through the church to the angelic realm. And I would argue that this includes God's holy angels, along with the demonic world. Brothers and sisters, God has put us on display to make known His wisdom. Wisdom from above, not from below. Again, we see a familiar theme here. There is a vast spiritual reality that we cannot physically see. Even though we cannot physically see this world, the spiritual world, it is clearly a reality. And if you're, in tune, if you're in tune with this reality, then you see the results around you. The demonic forces wreak havoc on this world. You see the result in broken lives and families. You see it in women who refuse God's plan for marriage. You see it in men who will not commit to love and cherish one woman. You see it in children who are completely out of control and will not obey their parents. You see it in men who father multiple children with multiple women, yet refuse to be any part of their lives. We see that spiritual havoc being played out in weak and ineffective churches led by weak men and strong women. In those churches, the men are effeminate and the women are masculine. In our modern context, we see this in liberal churches. We've seen this for many years. More recently, we're seeing it in churches and in denominations that we thought were strong. They're bowing down to the current culture by refusing or confusing what God's Word says about gender, what God's Word says about gender roles, what God's Word says about sexual immorality, and on and on and on. Church, all these things are a result of living according to the wisdom of this age. Paul, oh, John, James, that is, calls it wisdom from below, which I'm going to tie this together. He describes it as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Again, you see that theme of, of the spiritual world that we can't see. Now, let me tie this all together and relate it back to what we've learned in our Family Matters series. You may recall that I started this series by pleading with you, if you were here, to recognize what this culture is doing to our families. I also explained how critical our families are to the church. You see, strong families make up strong churches which flourish and are a light to this lost world. Weak and ineffectual families lead to weak and ineffectual churches which weather and die. And oh, by the way, weak and ineffectual families come from men who are weak and ineffectual. We saw in Ephesians 3.10 that God then is revealing His manifold wisdom through the church. In 5.15, Paul called the church at Ephesus to be wise in their walk. Beloved, the things we have learned are wisdom from above. The things that we've seen in this Family matter series are wisdom from above. You see, wisdom from below says to you women, you shouldn't submit to any man. He's not worthy of it. Wisdom from above tells you, lovingly submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wisdom below, from below says to you men, you men, women are only meant for our sexual gratification, just to get them in bed. Why commit to just one? Wisdom from above says, Husbands, sacrificially love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wisdom from below says to the children, You know better than your parents. They're fools. Wisdom from above says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Wisdom from below says, stick it to your boss every chance you get. Seriously, right? Wisdom from above says, obey your earthly masters as as unto the Lord. Wisdom from below says, my employees won't perform unless I prod them like cattle. Wisdom from above says, always remember, your employees are made in the image of God. Church, this is the point. Wisdom from below leads to the destruction of family. It, it will lead to the destruction of your family. Wisdom from above will lead to a family which flourishes before the Lord. And flourishing families men and women flourishing families lead to flourishing churches. Flourishing churches are a demonstration of the manifold witness of God or wisdom of God. Do you see the connection? As we live out our lives before the Lord, we are a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. As we live out wisdom from above and not wisdom from below, as we are countercultural and say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to live, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. If we do that, we are a, a witness of the manifold wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I highly encourage you to consider the truths that have been taught in this Family Matters series and implement them in your life and family to the extent you're able. If you are married, if you're married, I urge you to cherish your marriages. Men, cherish your wives. Wives, cherish your husbands. If you have children, I urge you to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're working for a company, I urge you to be the right kind of employee, as if Christ were your master—earthly master, that is. Those of you who have employees, I, I urge you to treat them, to treat them well. I urge you, according to Colossians three twenty-two, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. And if you do so, God will bless you and your family. Let me give you a warning, though. The demonic realm will not stand idly by as you pursue godliness. They will attack. They will attack. You will need to prepare for this battle. Funny enough, as it were, The name of our next sermon series in Ephesians 6, 10-20 is called Preparing for Battle. If you commit to these things, you will be attacked, and you need to be ready. Now, as we complete this passage this morning, I want to bring you back to our discussion of work. Last time I reminded you that God never ceases in His work. He is working even now to sustain His creation by His Word. But there is one work that He has finished. As Christ was nearing death on the cross, He proclaimed to the Father. It is finished. It is finished. You see, He has finished His redemptive work with His death, burial, and resurrection. The question is, have you placed your trust in His finished work of redemption? It has been said, did Christ finish His work for us? Then there can be no doubt, but He will also finish His work in us. End quote. Friend, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus beckons you to come. He says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I beg you, I beg you this morning, turn to Him. I beg you to cast all your sins upon Him. Cast your cares upon Him. Don't let this day go by. Don't let it go by. You don't know what the next moment will bring. If you've learned anything from recent events, we don't know when our lives will be required of us. And in Hebrews 9.27 it says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment." The same writer says later in Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. He beckons you to come. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank You this morning. for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this entire passage that teaches us wisdom from above so that we can walk wisely in a world that is turned against you. So that we would be a demonstration, as your church, a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. May our wives lovingly submit to their own husbands. May our husbands lovingly, sacrificially love their wives. May our children obey. Obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. May our children honor us as parents. For those who are in the work world, may we work and do our work in a way that is pleasing to you. And for those who are managers of people, that are supervisors of people, may we, may we love those who are in our charge, and never treat them in an unbecoming way. May these things be characterized, may these things characterize our church here, Grace Bible Church Gainesville. In Christ's name we pray, amen.